Before we start this episode, I want to ask you a favor. If you like the show, give me some love. It's great that you tell me that you like me and you give me the feedback, but please go ahead and also rate and review me on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Also, as we gear up for the holiday season, tell three people in your life, a friend or two, uh, relatives, that you have this new podcast that you listen to. That's the Chris Ham Podcast. And please follow me at Chris and Ham on Twitter. This show actually has listeners all over the world, even now. So please continue to help me spread the word. Your support and feedback are incredibly meaningful to me. Hello and welcome to the Chris Ham Podcast. Episode number 26. Coming off Thanksgiving a couple of days ago. Uh, The family and I had a day that virtually went off without a hitch. Now, this was our fourth year in a row uh, preparing our our own meal slash hosting and putting together our own feast. Uh, Every dish outside of the cranberry sauce, the applesauce, and the turkey, which we outsourced, came from scratch and was prepared in our kitchen. And the turkey we, to be fair, cooked in our kitchen as well. Um, We hit up a local establishment that is a butcher and grocer in our our, uh, town. And it's a fantastic little spot. It's owned by a guy in his early 40s and his mom uh, after his dad, who was in the culinary business, passed away. Uh, been shopping there every year since we've been out in the Burbs um, for Thanksgiving. And we, we, we get stuff from there all the time. But um, since it was just the three and a half of us this year, we got a smaller turkey breast, which was seasoned in brine. And we just stuck it in the oven. Everything else was prepared from scratch. From the mac and cheese to the mashed potatoes to the sweet potato casserole with marshmallows, cornbread, Brussels sprouts. Um, it's just absolutely delicious. And then the bread pudding and two varieties of chocolate chip cookies, which I prepared for dessert. And then we shuttled off to a French house where we um, went for dessert that night, uh, for Thanksgiving night. It was just a solid, solid day all around. Got to watch pieces of at least all three football games, uh, got to really watch the most of the first and the second game, but um, just have a great show coming up for you today. Um, we will talk about a local cultural staple, uh, racial perception in the next generation, going to go into a, a, a feature, a new segment of parenting that is going to be a weekly, a weekly thing, um, which I think everybody will, will appreciate whether you're a parent or not. And then um, our usual NFL bridge storylines and picks against the spread. So let's buckle up. Here we go. So I want to start with this. So the day's bookending Thanksgiving, the Wednesday and Friday before and after respectively, I have zero interest in cooking, no interest in cooking whatsoever. And typically want nothing to do with poultry. So we started the holiday weekend off with a local establishment in our area Jimmy's Pizza. Now, people travel far and wide in this area for search of good pizza. And from the New York metro area all the way up to New Haven, Connecticut, pizza is just phenomenal. Now, I know people in other parts of the country think that we are sanctimonious as hell about pizza. And I will admit I am guilty as charged. Now, I've lived and visited plenty of other parts of the country and got pizza. And it's just dog shit everywhere else. It just is. And... I'm excluding Chicago and Philly. Chicago has obviously the the deep dish style. It's a different type of pizza. Very solid from there. And Philly has a big 
a big Italian section and I think some, some solid cultural influences there. But in all likelihood, elsewhere, the Italian-American population coupled with the water texture isn't at the critical mass to produce real deal pizza. And in the New York area, just off the top of my head, in New York City, in the five boroughs, you have Joe's, great for a slice in the West Village. John's, great for a nice solid sit-down traditional pie in the West Village. And for those of you from other parts of the country, we call pizza pies, okay? Just deal with it, all right? A pie doesn't have to be just some kind of a sweet dish, all right? So there's Joe's, there's John's, there's Grimaldi's in Brooklyn. There's Lucali in Brooklyn, where the owner actually got into a knife fight with another mafia associate. Now, Google the story if you want to read more. You can go down quite the rabbit hole of that one. But there's, there's those four, there's Bomoni Gardens, there's Roberta's. And then if you head up just to Westchester County where we live and, and Connecticut, um, you have Sally's and Frank Pepe's in New Haven. You have Johnny's in Mount Vernon. You have Michael's in Portchester. You have Sal's Pizza in Mamaroneck. And under the radar, Jimmy's Pizza. Now, let me paint the picture for you. The husband and wife who own it are Greek. Yes, Greek. All right. They feature a Greek-style pizza that isn't feta and olives and potatoes, but rather a pan-style crust that has a heartier consistency and has the same toppings that the same sort of mainstream toppings that you might be used to. Now, first and foremost, the pizza is absolutely delicious. It's a slightly smaller slice that, in spite of the crust, makes it easier to eat more and not feel like you're, you're gorging yourself. But... As it relates to Jimmy's, it's the experience itself and the idiosyncrasies of both Jimmy, the owner, and the brick and mortar that make the establishment truly unique. All right. Now, Jimmy. Jimmy's been in business longer than I've been alive, dating back to the late 70s, apparently. All right. Now, he runs the business with his wife, and they could be like a comedy routine. They're constantly just, I mean, she's, she doesn't seem to really like him very much in spite of their, their long marriage and run as business partners. But um, Jimmy himself has to be somewhere in his late 60s or early 70s um, with his wife that he, that he works with in, the, in, the, in, his, in his restaurant and two older children that apparently are in their 40s uh, who I've never met. Now, Jimmy, in spite of being in this country for over 40 years, living in, the, in this area near a major city and having a customer base of native, native English speakers, speaks unfathomably choppy English. It's, it's, it's really unbelievable. I mean, sometimes I've had a smile and nod when he starts going off on a tangent about something because I have no idea what the hell he's saying. But Jimmy's Pizza Shop feels frozen in time like in 1979. And he still uses a, a light-up menu that I haven't seen since the, since the late 1980s bowling alleys. Uh, the bowling alley um, uh, food, food, uh, food courts. Um, and up until the, his recent location move, I think his register was also from the late 1970s. And as old as any register I've seen in, in my life. Now, Jimmy and his wife are the only employees of this restaurant in spite of its popularity. And what happened in the last year is we reached a tipping point. Now, in spite of his archaic ways of operating his business from equipment to operations to marketing, he was able to move locations to a nicer and slightly bigger space about 500 feet from his old location, which speaks to how friggin' good the pizza is. Now, quickly in his old location, right? this place was not for the faint of heart. He had boots and stools that were straight out of the 70s and also probably marginally clean since that time. And put it nicely, he didn't have the most aesthetically welcoming place to ever want to dine in. And if you were ordering in, looking the other way was often the way to go. But the pizza's delicious. 
He reached a critical mass where his business was seemingly good enough to invest in a bigger and better space. Now, unsurprisingly, if you spend any time around Jimmy, the move wasn't seamless, and he was out of commission probably longer than he should have been for a good six or seven months. Now, he reopened just over a week ago, and the fans of his pizza, coupled with the, the respectable new venue, has seemed to reach a mass where the guy just needs to hire more staff. It was pandemonium the two times that we've been in since he's been reopened. Right, Jen, my wife, and our daughter Eloise and I went in after his hiatus, uh, really pumped out of his pizza again. I mean, even Eloise, who is not even three and a half yet, has had positive memories of Jimmy's and was just jazzed to be there. Uh, and and it's just much a much nicer space now. The booths are nice. They're cl- it's just a cleaner restaurant. And thank God we called ahead because when we walked in, stood Jimmy with his pizza oven next to the front counter. His wife kind of in behind the scenes in the background going back and forth and about 12 to 15 people slowly rotating through the takeout experience. Now, he had fellow patrons. It was such chaos in there that he had fellow patrons taking orders of other patrons on pads, um, answering phones, passing add-on items like sodas. And those who love him, including us, threw a few extra bucks at him on top of the order. And the pizza, mm, it was as good as we remember and if not better with the new ovens. But the major takeaway is Jimmy and Mrs. Jimmy. Hire some more staff. All right. I got to believe somebody approached him as a business logistics person in the last 40 years. But this is something that, that is just there for the taking, for this local mom and pop business and to be able to take it to the next level. Now, if they had one counter slash phone person, one other kitchen person, his already popular business, I think, would grow exponentially. I'm of that that opinion. Now, if you're driving north of 995 from New York City, about 30 minutes away, pop in. It's no more than a mile off the highway and worth the experience. And if you live anywhere in Westchester County, leave yourself a lot of time. Make sure you have a lot of patience, but go in with an open mind and at least grab a pie to go. I love the pepperoni and onion personally. So Jimmy's Pizza, a discussion centered around hair next. So many of you hopefully listened to my Don't You One Drop Me episode where I talk about some of my feelings around being mixed race and some of the major societal misconceptions and faux pas that exist out there around racial interpretation and dialogue. Now, if you haven't checked it out yet, it was episode four of the Chris Ham podcast. It was released mid-July, so about four and a half months ago, and it featured my friend Daya, who is half black and half Indian. So different racial mix, but biracial as well. And what I want to talk about today specifically is hair. Now, if you don't, if you know me personally, I don't have much hair, all right? I pretty much buzz my head every single week to keep it clean. Now, I don't bick it, but I do buzz it. You know, bicking seems a lot more drastic. And I fortunately do not have a single gray yet. I'm not receding a ton for 38, but I choose to buzz my head because it suits me. Now, I don't even have have gray showing up in my beard yet, which I think might come first, but I'm of mixed race and I never loved the texture of my own hair. Now, since my mom is Italian-American with a curly mop and my dad is African-American with less than average European dilution, my hair is a bit frizzy when it, when it gets grown out. Now, it's not super kinky given my racial mix, but it, it's definitely frizzy. And people often um, you know, comment that our older daughter, while looking very much like me, has, quote unquote, my wife's hair, which is mostly true. 
they have the same exact color, um, the same exact color hair, a medium to dark brown. They have a, a very similar texture. You know, my daughter, maybe given some of my gene blending, has slightly more wavy slash curly hair, uh, probably more on the wavy side. Beautiful hair. But one thing that just really pisses me off is when there was an assumption earlier that she would have some sort of frizzy hair. And the reason why this pisses me off so much is because not that I'm expecting everybody to be a genetic expert out there, but I think it's rooted in my interpretation of many, particularly monoracial people, which are probably most of you listening, that race is some sort of a binary gene. Now, the nature of so many fucking people at times is to use the good old cognitive distortion of black and white thinking. Now, literally, black and white thinking is a cognitive distortion that where that exists where we tend to see things as all or nothing. Now, you know I like to talk about cognitive distortions. I've talked about them on previous episodes. I'll talk about them on in future episodes. Now, things what, what, what black and white thinking um, uh, states is that things are either good or bad, right or wrong. In other words, we see the extremes of the situation. We see one extreme or another. There is no middle ground nor shades of gray. Now, what then will happen is folks will literally apply it to racial interpretation. Now, I see close friends do this, even family members, and there are all kinds of reasons, like I think psychological bargaining that drive this. Like, hey, look at me, I have a black friend or relative, so it adds to my interesting factor, or it undermines my racial prejudices. You know, with this new generation of people, especially those, those kids that are born post-2010, um, you're looking at a lot of 25% white, 25% black, 25% other race kids. Now, my kids, my, my, my older daughter and my soon-to-be daughter are 25% black. Probably in reality a, a smidge less given my next point. But 25% white is less noticeable because many light-skinned, quote-unquote, light-skinned blacks are people who have had an ancestor who was a slave and a slave master and over time, the racial mix of descendants skewed more towards being black because they kept on marrying people that were, um, that were of African ancestry. Now, you also see the other way where someone, somebody does 23andMe and they find out that 5% of their ancestry is from Africa. You know, the moral of the story is that racial dilution happens as soon as you have two parents of different races and it goes further each time their offspring doesn't marry somebody else of the exact same um, and similar proportion racial combo. So biracial people are often, I think, pigeonholed into the minority racial group. I mean, we see it all the time. But with this next generation, it's going to be harder and dumber to do this. Thus, my children are mostly mostly of Caucasian ancestry. They are mixed. I am mixed, but I am more mixed. Now, my point here is too often we rush to classify and take a diluted racial mix and assume facts similar to the purest form. It happened with me. It's happened with me my whole life. You know, my, my racial composition is nuanced. It's, it's mixed. I have one black parent. I have a white parent. My features are blended. And my experience as a 50% person of color is going to be muted from my dad's experience. And my kid's experience is going to be muted from my own experience. And the moral here is that race is nuanced. And if you are applying classifications in life to friends or acquaintances of various racial groups, you're probably doing it in other areas of your life too that aren't serving you. It's just something to take a look at. So brand new segment on parenting up next and relating parenting kid and dogs up next. (laughs) 
My daughter, Eloise, is a major part of my life along with my lovely wife, Jen. Now, parenting is a concept that we are both just scratching the surface on, but there are so many interesting things that happen, both funny and serious, and that I thought it would be interesting to share them on this podcast regularly, especially as we are a little over three months away from welcoming daughter number two into the household. Now, before getting into the latest with the three-year-old, I have to acknowledge something, which I have acknowledged individually to plenty of friends and acquaintances over the last three years, three and a half years. Now, my wife and I got our dog, Bruno, a little over four and a half years ago when we were living in the city. And I could go do a deeper dive on Bruno another day, who is a friggin' character as far as dogs go. But my wife um, grew up with a dog. Now, she had a, a dog, or she had, a, I guess, a couple of dogs as, as, as a kid. But the, the dog that she had, uh, who she was really close to, was one that lived from when she was about 10 or 11 and didn't pass away until she was nearly 26. We were already dating a few years. And you know, she convinced me to get a dog for years um, and pitched me on and I resisted and resisted and finally caved in 2015. Now, one of her selling points was that it would help us get ready for having kids. Now, at the time, I thought this was largely bullshit. But, um, you know, and I think she might have even thought she was talking herself into this, but she couldn't have been more accurate. Now, in fact, I felt that the jump from no dog to dog was more jarring of a lifestyle jump than from dog to baby. Now, I'll let you know how it feels from baby one to baby, you know, from one kid to two kids. But you have to consider um, another life besides your own, uh, every dinner, every, every weekend getaway, long vacation, family occasion. I mean, this is just something to consider as soon as a pet comes into the fold. Now, another big, big thing where I think it's very analogous uh, to having kids is the dog park. And navigating the dog park and the anxiety of wondering how your dog was going to get along with other dogs is very much uh, the same sort of mental uh, preparation you have to do when your kids get out of the baby phase and start interacting with other kids at birthday parties or friends' houses. And you know, there's very few things in parenting that give me more freaking anxiety than this. Um, I mean, and this is like never ending, like not wanting to be too much of a helicopter parent, but wanting to care, especially as they're like in their formative years and, and um, you know, they're, they're fragile beings physically, emotionally, and just, you know, they're also resilient. So it's just, it's just a really strange thing, but it's, it's such a, a source of anxiety, but it's very similar to, to how it was when we first got Bruno, we took him for walks to the dog park, we took him for walks around the neighborhood and just the anxiety of, of running up and brushing up against other dogs and not knowing how either are going to react. Um, but um, you know, as far as the latest things in parenting a three-year-old, I mean, the first thing is, I mean, Eloise, she wants to touch everything, like literally everything, wherever we are, fragile, dangerous, ours, not ours. I mean, that's the thing about like, you know, she's, when, when kids are, are, are transitioning from baby to toddler, like when they're like a year and a half, two years, I mean, you're basically on suicide watch, they're clumsy, you're worrying about them falling. At this age now, like kind of like, like, like somewhere between toddler and like little kid, like it's just about touching everything. It's just like and making sure that they're not going to break something at a store or at somebody's house or, or something special at your own home. That's a big thing going on right now in, in our life. Now, secondly, one of the toughest things for me is the amount of times and the timing that she wants to be held. Now, I want to be there for her as her dad um, when she wants to feel safe and secure, especially as it's harder and harder for my wife or Jen at six months pregnant to, to hold her. But it's getting challenging now for as far as Eloise goes. I mean, she's big now. She's somewhere between 
you know, three feet and 40 inches and 30 something pounds and kind of dovetailing with this next point these days, she's afraid of a lot of shit. She's incredibly emotional and empathic and intuitive, which she got from Jen. And for me, she got the sensitivity to loud noises. So it's created this perfect storm of fear. Now we got Disney plus recently and having, you know, all the things on there and, and on Netflix. I mean, there's just certain parts of movies that she wasn't scared of a year ago that just terrify her now. You know, sometimes it's the obvious things around like yelling or shouting or scary villains, but sometimes it's just scenes where feelings are heavy or someone is trying to manipulate somebody else. You know, for example, two things that she is absolutely terrified of um, as far as just fear goes, like outside of even movies, any sort of insect, even just an ant that's tiny will just freak her out. I mean, she freaked out over a, a house fly in her house the other day. And uh, the other thing that freaked that, that she's terrified of recently is that there's this mural in our in our greater town and neighboring town uh, in our neighboring village that you know some sort of Latin heritage mural and there's two women and and and, and one man and the one woman uh, of the two has a serious face and we can't pass this woman even in a moving car you know if we walk by the alley which leads to the parking lot with this mural Elias just buries her head in and tells us that she doesn't want to see the woman. To avoid, it's almost like she's trying to like avoid Medusa or something. And sometimes as a parent, I lose patience on both the holding part of it and the fear. And I think the fear, I was, I was skittish as a kid over loud noises, which I mentioned, and a lot of stuff like, like that. And I, I think I just take out a lot of my own anger, of my own fear on her. And I just don't want to do that. And it's, it's a big challenge as a parent, something I never get her prepared for. And then um, at some point also, I mean, probably sooner than I want to think about, I'm going to be yearning for the days that Eloise wanted me to hold her constantly, hold her consistently. And sometimes it's not always the most convenient. So, you know, she's asked to be held when I'm driving. She'll ask to be held sometimes if we're in a store and I'm paying for something and I don't have any free hands and Jen is holding other things. And it's just something that, again, like when at some point, probably very soon when she's, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old, she's not going to want me to hold her anymore. Not going to want me to at least hold her consistently. So uh, I have to cherish these moments now and not take any of this for granted. So um, coming up, NFL week 12 to 13 bridge. All right, as we walk from week 12 to week 13, let's look at a few narratives and storylines out there. Now, the first point I want to make, right? Um, I want to talk about Drew Brees for a second. Now, the the Saints, you know, they're an incredibly solid team. They moved to nine and two. They're they're vying for the, the top seed in the NFC. Uh, they beat the Atlanta Falcons, the very disappointing Atlanta Falcons on Thanksgiving night. Uh, they won pretty handily. They ended up winning by just this one score, the 26-18, but they, had, they were in control the whole game. And I want to talk about Breeze. I mean, is he really as good as we treat him? It's like blasphemous, I know, for, for me to say that. Um, and I'm not saying he isn't a very talented quarterback and highly skilled and accurate, and he's been very durable. Um, he had a big, you know, the shoulder injury between his San Diego days and his New Orleans days, but he's had a career lasting nearly two decades with several broken records, including all-time passing yards, most games with a touchdown pass, but I'm going to throw some mud on him for a second, all right? Drew Brees is 160 and 110 as a starter, which is winning under 60% of his games. And just to put that in, in perspective and, and to compare that to other people that he gets lumped in with a lot. Tom Brady has a 775 winning percentage. Peyton Manning had a 70% winning percentage. Ben Roethlisberger has a 67% winning percentage. Russell Wilson, who's a little bit younger than Breeze's by about a decade, 
but certainly in the elite in the, in the um, elite group of quarterbacks in, in 2019, he's a 69% winning percentage. He's never been under 500 for his career. You, you know how underrated I think he is. But to me, he's in, in the same class of those other four guys when I look at the last decade, decade and a half of quarterbacks. Now, his winning percentage just edges out Joe Flacco and Matt Ryan. You know, he has 18 years in the league. Division titles, um, he's had division titles in less than a third of those 18 years. He's had one Super Bowl appearance and one Super Bowl win. One first-team All-Pro, zero league MVPs, can't throw the deep ball. He's good, but should he, like, why is it that he's, he's in everybody's default top five every year? Is it because he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a white guy who's six feet, he has a birthmark in his face, he doesn't have this Adonis chiseled physique. He's got this medium pitch kind of relatable voice, not movie star looks, and he's good with the media. I mean, that is one narrative I wanted to challenge was how good is Drew Brees really? Just something to think about. And as we commence week 13, all right, with three Thanksgiving Day games here, um, I'm going to extract what I think are the biggest storylines. All right, so on Thanksgiving, we saw the Bears edge out the, the Detroit Lions, um, who were starting uh, with David Blow was his name from, uh, I don't know, he's from like Louisiana Tech or something, transferred from Florida, um, really had a decent game for, for being a third-string quarterback or whatever the hell he was, uh, with Stafford having like the broken bones in his back. The Lions are sinking like a ship. Um, so the, the Bears won that game. The Bills, um, you know, pretty handily beat the, the Dallas Cowboys in their in their own building. And as I mentioned, the Saints beat the Falcons. But as we're looking at the storylines, I have five for you. Storyline number one: Can anybody stop Lamar Jackson? All right, what a Monday night performance we saw where he lit up the LA Rams. Now he's been an, an enigma given his prolific running, his efficient throwing, but he he's not, you know blowing the doors off as far as passing yards at all. And he's not throwing a ton of a ton of completions every game. His stats are very similar. If you look at his stats, they're very similar to Cam Newton in 2015, which is certainly good enough for an MVP. And in, and it's, he's certainly in the conversation, I think, with Russell Wilson right now as a top, uh, as a most likely MVP for the, for the league. But he almost has, if you're comparing him to Cam Newton from 2015, he has almost an identical number of completions per game, less attempts, so he's a little bit more efficient. Less sack yards, so he's not getting sacked as much. Better yards per average, or yards per attempt, and more rushing yards. He's on pace to break, break all kinds of records with respect to rushing. Now, this is the story. Can anybody stop him? The Niners have an incredibly dominant defense that completely shut down Aaron Rodgers last week. Um, the Ravens and Niners face off in Baltimore this week. I'll get to that on my ham, hot, butter, knife picks. That's storyline number one. Storyline number two, another game I'm looking at for my picks. Uh, the Steelers and Browns rematch after the Miles Garrett Mason Rudolph helmet fight, where where Miles Garrett swung his helmet at at Mason Rudolph without it without his helmet on, could have given the guy a concussion, killed the guy. Who the hell knows? Uh, just really dangerous stuff. You know, I don't I don't give a fuck what Miles Garrett does on the uh, on the side if he's writing poetry and playing the piano, whatever the hell he does. Like how good of a guy he is. That's a that's a shitty shitty thing to do. And I don't like throwing this word around. But that's a thug thing to do on the field. It just is. I don't care what his race is, all right? And this whole racial slur accusation, it seems like it's bullshit because it was thrown out right away by the NFL when they were when he was when Garrett was appealing a suspension. And nobody on the on the Steelers heard it. That's just interesting. I mean, Rudolph has plenty of black teammates. 
You know, this is this wasn't like um, you know the Grays versus the St. Louis Cardinals in the nineteen forties. I mean, these are two like predominantly African American teams going at it. So I think it's a big storyline. They're they're playing this weekend as a rematch of that Thursday night game from a few weeks ago. <coughs> storyline number three: After the Thanksgiving Day embarrassment, how will the Cowboys finish? They're six and six. They still hold the keys to winning the division. It's really just them. It's them and the Eagles. They have the Eagles head-to-head, the, the second-to-last game of the season. They win that game. They win a few others. Probably would just be 9-7. and seven. They're going to win the NFC East. But will Jason Garrett last? What does he need to do to keep his job? A 9-7, and seven, eking out a division. Ain't going to cut it for Garrett. You know, last year they won a playoff game. You know, he's going to need at least a playoff win. And it's going to have to be a dominant win in like a close, you know, division-round loss. Because they ain't getting a bye if they win the division. That's for sure. But it's gonna it's gonna take that I think for Garrett to keep his job. It's gonna take a deep run in the postseason. So I, I think Garrett's toast, personally. But that's a big storyline: is how's Jason Garrett gonna react, <coughs> and how will the Cowboys finish the season? Storyline number four: Mitchell Trubisky. He can't quite bust just yet. You know, I'm not high on the guy. I mean, I'm I'm ready to write him off. But ultimately, here, you know, he's 300 plus yards, three touchdown day on Thanksgiving. He had a really good second half against. The Lions and the Bears are 6-6. Six and six. They're right in the thick of things. I mean, can they get a wild card spot? It's unlikely given how good the Seahawks and 49ers are. One of those teams is going to be a wild card team. How good the Packers and the Vikings are in Trubisky's own division. It's likely one of those is going to be a wild card team, barring a collapse. But just interesting to see. But Trubisky's not – he's nowhere near Mahomes and and, uh, and Watson. He like They, they blow his, him statistically out of the water. Um, and – just in general, he's not as good as them, but he's not quite ready to bust yet. I still think he was it was a reach. You guys know how I feel about Trubisky. And then finally, storyline number five, can Oakland bounce back after they got their ass kicked last week? Was the Jets game a trap game? They have a Casey showdown coming coming this week. Can they bounce back? Can they get back in the division race, back in the playoff hunt? Uh, they're still in the playoff hunt, but can they? There's a lot of teams that are right around their their record. They're six and five. There's other teams that are six and five, five and six. So. Really interesting week as we as we as we as we go into December in the NFL, the final push before the season's over. So, ham hot butter knife picks against the spread next. All right, before we hop into picks, I'm going to start each week now for the rest of the season giving a couple pieces of wagering advice. Now, I want to give you some advice which I ref, you know which I reflected on as we had. The Thanksgiving slate the other day. Now, the first thing I have is you have to pick and choose games to wager on based on value, not timing around what is going to scratch your action edge. And wagering because you want action is a slippery slope. You know, it's why there are lines out there for, for all these ridiculous things and why people who, who don't watch a lick of WNBA bet on it. But on a given full NFL slate week, which we have seen for the first time since September and Week three due to the buys and that happened in the middle of the season. Um, there may be four to five value spots on average, and the bye weeks is probably more like three to four. Now, a lot of you might be in office pools or super contest priority uh, pick them style, um, and it's not wise to just wager on games unless you really feel there's value. So, um, to wager on every primetime game or Thanksgiving Day slate is in, in, in every single game is a donkey move. So, that's my first tip. And tip number two is when you're looking at, at, um, at lines, you have to consider what the spots when picking games. You know, it's a square move to select games against the spread in a vacuum as if they were the only game being played for each team this year. Now, teams 
react to momentum. And it's one of those things that is more of an art than a science. For example, wins are contagious. And other times, teams get boastful and they puff out their chest when they win a few games and are due for a letdown. So you have to know kind of which situation you're in. Also, if a team is off a bye, off a stretch of home games or road games with a certain result, that has to be looked at as well. And the biggest thing that many laymans don't look at is what's the following week game for, for a team that you're evaluating? Is there a bigger one ahead of the one on the schedule for this week, particularly one against a more formidable opponent that can create a classic trap spot? So my picks continue to roll over the last 21 games, seven weeks. Last week, I was 2-1 and one against the spread again. Boy, did I flop thinking the Rams would upset the Ravens who have been a buzzsaw through the league, especially uh, over the last few games. And, you know, I did nail the Jets upset of the Raiders and easily covered the plus three. And I also won the Cowboys getting six, thanks to Jason Garrett for kicking a field goal instead of going for it on fourth down. But a win is a win. And for the season now, um, I am a very so-so 17-16-3, and three, over 500. But I have been 13-7-1 and one over the last 18 games for a 642 winning percentage. And the knife is plenty sharp as we roll into December. So without further ado... Week 13, 13 picks. Here we go. Let's start in Kansas City, where the Oakland Raiders are getting 10.5 points. I like Oakland plus 10.5. Let's talk movement. Line started at Kansas City minus 8.5. has moved all the way up to 10.5. Let's talk distribution. 72% of tickets and 61% of the cash are on Kansas City. So that means that there's more sharp money skewing towards Oakland. Now, Kansas City's off a buy. Andy Reid off a buy is dangerous straight up at 17-3. But he's 13-7 and seven against the spread um, off a of bye. Now, Oakland got humiliated last week, and they are going to give their best effort, I think, on both sides of the ball. I still think Kansas City is a formidable team that hasn't even peaked yet, but still is very much firmly in their, in their division uh, driver's seat with one of the best young quarterbacks in the league, and they're still finding themselves identity-wise. But these teams are in a dogfight for the AFC West. They're both good teams. They're both top 10 in yards per play. Both top 12 or so offensively. I don't know that Oakland wins this game outright, but I think they fight to at least cover. They put in a good effort. So give me Oakland plus 10.5 at Kansas City and Arrowhead. Next, let's go to Pittsburgh, where the Pittsburgh Steelers are getting two points against the Cleveland Browns. Let me repeat that. The Pittsburgh Steelers are getting two points against the Cleveland Browns. What kind of world do we live in where the Browns under 500 are favorite on the road. They've been over 500 uh, to finish a season in, in over a decade, right? Now, Cleveland has won three straight to go up to, f- to five and six. They beat the Bills, Bills, the Steelers, and the Dolphins at home. Um, but they lost their last three on the road and six of, the, of, of eight last year on the road. I mean, this team is poorly coached, and Pittsburgh is going to be out for blood after getting embarrassed on TV um, on Thursday night and uh, Garrett coming after... Their quarterback. Now, what just came out earlier was that Freddie Kitchens, who's supposed to be the the leader and the captain of this team as a coach and lead by example, was apparently wearing a, a shirt that said, quote, Pittsburgh started it, referencing the, the fight. I mean, what kind of maturity does that show? All right, Tomlin is an, a, a top eight coach. Kitchens, if not the worst coach, is surely bottom three. You know, I know Duck Hodges is quarterback and Rudolph was benched, but I love Pittsburgh here in a revenge spot to not only cover the two, but to win the game outright. So give me the Steelers plus two hosting the Cleveland Browns. Last, let's go to Baltimore, where the San Francisco 49ers are getting five and a half points. Give me San Francisco plus five and a half. 
Let's talk movement. Game started at minus four and a half has gone up to Baltimore minus five and a half. Five is a dead number, but that shows you that the line is moving up. And I think a lot of um, the, the bookmakers are afraid of this Baltimore Ravens team. Let's talk distribution. 68% of the tickets on the Ravens, but 62% of the cash on the Ravens. So a skew toward the Niners as far as sharp money goes. Now, both teams are coming off blowing out teams. The 49ers blew out the Green Bay Packers at home, and the Baltimore Ravens went on the road and blew out the L.A. Rams. Now, Baltimore is riding higher in spite, riding higher in spite of a, a game worse in the loss column. Baltimore has won seven in a row and is the first team since the greatest show on turf Rams to cover by 17 or more in three straight games. Now, I don't know that they will win traveling west to east, but when two good teams like this faced off that are both well-coached and the spot is better for the team getting points, give me the team getting points. Now, part of me pictures a bunch of sideline shots with the very handsome Robert Sala celebrating as they stifle Lamar for the first time in a while this season. So give me Robert Sala, his shiny bald head, and the San Francisco 49ers plus five and a half at the Baltimore Ravens. So to recap my picks, I like Oakland plus ten and a half at Kansas City, Pittsburgh plus two versus the Browns, and San Francisco plus five and a half at the Ravens. A rant and a hot take up next. Hot take number one. If you're losing your hair, you just got to embrace it. Now, hair is a major part of your identity and looks. I get that. Especially if you had a, a, had a hair of, of head, a head of hair in your, in your youth that was, that was very, that was very uh, prominent. But, and I know it's a hard thing to grapple with, you know, going gray, receding, but sometimes you just have to embrace it and accept it. Now, a buzzed head on a weird shaped head or pale skin can be bad. But a comb over that is holding on for dear life can be even worse. And even worse than that, the George Costanza haircut where the sides are prominent and long and there is a bald, shiny head up top. That ages you at least a decade. After a certain point, you got to consider the Rock Ed Harris look at the very least. And keep it tight on the sides. Kind of You let some of the, 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 the hair follicles grow up top. But you got to at some point just embrace the fact that you're going bald. Happens, I think, for a lot of people, late 30s, sometime in your 40s, you know, make sure that you're, you're on the right side of history, folks. Make a good hair decision. So the moral of the story, again, my hot take, if you're losing your hair, you just got to embrace it. Buzz your head or bick it. Rant number one. Can we stop with some of these fucking baby names? All right? I'm all for creativity, and I know that the basic bitch names of my generation are, are gone. You know, being, being an older millennial, late generation X person, they're gone. The names like Michael and John and Chris and Jen and Jessica and Michelle and Sarah, Laura and Dan. But can we stop getting too cute with some of these names? Now, I'm, I'm going to read you some of these names. Some of these are fucking ridiculous, all right? Looking at some of the top baby names for 2020. Indigo. Ky- Kylo. Or Clio, Sorry. Jackson, J-A-X-T-O-N. Tate. Tate is a fucking cookie. You know, what is this, Space Odyssey? These are just some of the celebrity names that are out there. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter's daughter. Story Gray Jeter. Banks is Hillary Duff's kid. Electra. George is a girl's name. 
George is the father of this country, George Washington. It's a girl's name now. Chip and Joanna Gaines had a son named Crew. JBZ and Beyonce, Blue Ivy. Sir as a name. They also have another kid named Sir. Rocket. And just taking the Kardashians alone, these are some of their names. True was Chloe, is uh, Chloe's kid's name, not to be confused with Crew. Stormy, Dream, North, Saint, Chicago, and Psalm. Are you fucking kidding me with this? If you want to be original, whatever happened to street names and a last name is a first name? Now, I'm going to name my second daughter Park Shore, which is the name of my first day camp. I mean, at what point do we say enough is enough? Now, some of these celebs, by naming their kids' names, are basically a one-word way of saying, I'm hot, I'm rich, fuck you. We've gone a little off the rails with these baby names, all right? Let's come back to Earth, literally, and we can get creative. We don't need the basic names, but let's come back to reality. Thanks for listening to the Chris Ham Podcast. Please follow me on Twitter, at Chris N. Ham. Your support and feedback is incredibly valuable as I grow this podcast. So please tell me what you like, what you don't like, and feel free to suggest topic ideas. Take it easy, friends. Be well.